0: The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared.
1: After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream hundreds of Gettysburg videos online on the app and on Roku. Learn more at GettysburgCollection.com.
0: gentlemen and welcome to Battlefield, Pennsylvania. Today we're on location in Hampton Township, Cumberland County. In June of 1863, Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia was bearing down on Harrisburg. When the Confederates first arrived at the west shore of the Susquehanna River, they engaged in a firefight with Union militia at a place called Sporting Hill. Although this event is often treated as a footnote in history, it was the northernmost action of the Gettysburg Campaign and the closest the Confederates would ever come to capturing the state capital i'm your host brady kreitzer joining me today to discuss the skirmish at sporting hill is author cooper wingert and president of the camp Curtin historical society jim schmick gentlemen thank you both for being here thank you cooper i'd like to start with you tell us about your background with the civil war
2: well thank you brady um i began uh, researching uh, the civil war shortly after a fifth grade field trip to gettysburg i've lived here in the harrisburg area all my life and then uh, I've even passed this barn for years growing up as a kid and really didn't know quite what it meant uh, in our history. And as I began reading books like Here Come the Rebels on the invasion of the West Shore and the Confederate approach to Harrisburg, it sparked an interest in me. And I began doing primary source research all across the country, um, mailing checks for photocopies to historical societies, um, and that combined to uh, create a, a book I wrote called The Confederate Approach on Harrisburg. Um, so, that's pretty much how I got started and uh, very passionate about this local history uh, right here.
0: Jim? Uh,
1: back in uh, when I was a little little guy, two years old, my David would take me to Gettysburg and growing up, continued to take me there because that's what he remembers as a kid. And seeing the big monuments, you know, it was just an impression on me and really got me hooked on the Civil War, but he never really taught me anything, you know, just went down there. so. I wanted to teach my kids stuff, and I got really into it and uh, passionate about it. And uh, it's always been one of my favorites my whole life. Uh, Back in 1990, uh, I helped lead an effort to get the Governor Curtin Monument restored in Harrisburg. It was uh, where the Dauphin County Agricultural Fairgrounds were uh, during the Civil War, the forerunner to the Pennsylvania State Farm Show. Of course, back then it would be present day Sixth and Woodbine. And out of that effort, we created the Camp Curtin Historical Society, and we're like the watchdogs of Central PA. We're here to help preserve Central PA's uh, Civil War history, and we're starting to put monuments and waysides up of the area to educate the public what happened around here. Because you gotta look at the whole campaign, not just the three days at Gettysburg.
0: And now you make your living, you own your own store.
1: Yes, yes, I've had that store now for uh, 15 years. I was an actual mail carrier. And I delivered mail-in camp Curtin for almost 40 years. But I've owned the store for 15. I just retired several years ago, but now I work there uh, part-time. So it's neat.
0: So tell us a little about the area we're in now. What was this place like in the 1860s?
1: Um, Mechanicsburg had 2,000 people. And then Harrisburg had 14,000 people. Gettysburg had 2,400. So really, Mechanicsburg and Gettysburg was about close to the same size. Uh, the little village of Whitehall in 12 houses, now we call it Camp Hill, but it was called Whitehall during his time. Uh, the Church of God was founded here, so after the Civil War, Postmaster Bowman renames it Camp Hill because the Church of God camp up on a hill. Bridgeport, which is now Le Moyne where the fortifications were built, only had about a dozen homes
0: also. What was the state of the war in 1863?
2: Well, for for uh, the average observer, both today and in one thousand, eight hundred and sixty-three, you would think the Confederacy was doing very well. Uh, and you have an old saying: "Don't judge a book by its cover," and that is exactly true here. The Confederacy is on the short side uh, as far as manpower goes, weaponry goes, ammunition, foodstuffs. They are literally struggling to feed their army and their wives and children back home, who are left very desolate. This Union blockade that had been instituted uh, two years earlier is stifling southern ports. Robert E. Lee now is confronted in May of 1863 with some pushback from Confederates in Richmond, the Confederate government. They want to send parts of his army all the way down to Vicksburg, Mississippi to help um, relieve that city. Now that's an important city, but Robert E. Lee understands the Eastern Theater is the key to this war. It is the key to public perception in the north. He knows that a, an all-out military victory against the North is not possible. What he has to do is he has to break the will of the Northern people above anything else. And he, he's been doing this in Virginia where he's been winning these battles. In December 1862, he beats a Union force that outnumbers him 140,000 to 70,000. Six months later, he beats a Union army that outnumbers him 3 to 1. He continues to do this these amazing battlefield feats. Yet the war continues on. Abraham Lincoln is not giving up on this war. Um, the question is, can Lee make the northern people give up on this war? And he knows there's, two, there's one big way the northern people can force Lincoln, that's through elections. So he wants to bring the war to the northern people, that's why he comes here to Pennsylvania. He can win all the battlefield victories he wants in Virginia. but. Obviously that's not moving the needle to get the northern public to say this, this is enough, let them go be their own nation. So that's why he comes here into Pennsylvania uh, in 1863.
1: Yeah, well, the, uh, another thing also to talk about is the, uh, what Lee got out of this, sh- coming up from the Shenandoah Valley, which becomes a Cumberland Valley when you hit PA, the agriculture around here, he got over 70,000 head of cattle, that's pigs, sheep, and cows. And you know he was happy the whole way to October with the amount of food that uh, they were able to get out of the Cumberland Valley here. So you know you got to think of that. You always got to be near water, and
2: you got to clean out the farms.
0: What was it about Pennsylvania for an invasion that was so attractive to really? Lee?
2: Well, when you think about the northern states, obviously Pennsylvania, Maryland is not quite a full-fledged northern, st- you know, northern state with it has such so many d- divided loyalties at the time. Pennsylvania is the closest state that Lee can reach. And now you look at the cities in Pennsylvania. You have Pittsburgh, you have Philadelphia, you have Harrisburg, are the three major cities in southern Pennsylvania. The southern, you know, spear of Pennsylvania, I should say. Pittsburgh and Philadelphia are a long haul for an army, uh, especially considering you have to keep your line of communications. You have to be able to feed 70,000 men, uh, countless thousands of horses, ammunition, communications with Richmond. What city in Pennsylvania can he continue straight up, as Jim mentioned, through the valley to reach? And that is Harrisburg. You come, up the, you come down the Shenandoah Valley uh, through the Cumberland Valley, and you follow the Great Valley Road, what we now know as Route 11, to Harrisburg. And Harrisburg, maybe, maybe it's not Philadelphia, it's not Pittsburgh in size. Uh, it has about 14,000, 15,000 people as of 1860, but it is a capital. And there was one northern capital that fell, which was Frankfort, Kentucky. But again, Kentucky is one of those border states that has divided loyalties, uh, had two a Confederate government and a Union government. Pennsylvania is the second largest state in the Union as, as far as producing manpower for the war. Imagine if Harrisburg falls. And what Robert E. Lee understood, remember his goal, he has not one uh, physical goal. There's no geographic goal. His goal is the will of the Northern people. Uh, people who say Robert E. Lee came here and he, the only thing on his mind was Gettysburg. He captured Gettysburg twice during the Gettysburg campaign. Didn't do him any good. And really, as he's coming up, Gettysburg has just as much significance to Robert E. Lee as Hagerstown or uh, Chambersburg or Tawny Town or really any small town of that general size up the valley. So Lee comes to Harrisburg understanding that um, this is the place where he can make that blow to the northern people's confidence. Imagine on the cover of Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper or Harper's Weekly an engraving with the smoldering ruins of the capital of Harrisburg. That's what Robert E. Lee is going for.
0: Was there any sense, because people didn't know where Lee was going in either Pittsburgh or Philadelphia, that he may be coming there next?
2: They they sent uh, countless rounds of ammunition, countless supplies out to Pittsburgh. There were actually forts uh, being constructed out there. They sent most of the supplies and attention to Pittsburgh. Uh, but ultimately, that was really never in Robert E. Lee's playbook. He, it was, it was kind of unrealistic to think he could break his line of connection with 70,000 men and go out there. Uh,
1: hey. Go oh, ahead. Um, <clears throat> in uh, Jubilee Early's memoirs after the war and William Nelson Pendleton's, uh, Lee's chief of uh, artillery, they both said definitely Harrisburg uh, was a target. And, you know, Cooper alluded to Gettysburg being taken twice, and I, I think uh, the first a lot of people don't realize that they came through, uh, what, about five days prior? Uh, when Yule splits his corps, two-thirds come up to here, but the other third, under Early, is going through Gettysburg and eventually ending up in York in the Wrightsville. Of course, the bridge is burnt there, and uh, the troops cannot cross. Uh, uh, Early wanted to stay on the East Shore, he was ordered, he said, to go into Columbia, come back, burn the bridge, and head to Carlisle. But he said he was gonna go over the bridge, stay over there in Columbia, burn it, and stay on Harrisburg's east shore, while well, the east shore of of that area come up through, basically, Marietta, Middletown, into Harrisburg.
0: Could you talk about the logistics of taking Harrisburg? It's a major railroad hub.
2: Yes, and um, you have a number of railroads. You have the Cumberland Valley Railroad running out from Harrisburg down the valley. Uh, you have the Northern Central Railroad, which kind of wrapped up from Camp Curtin, wrapped around um, and would go south down towards Baltimore. And then you also have the Pennsylvania Railroad, which is near the site of the current Rockville Bridge, which is a famous uh, bridge, not the same bridge, but it, the historic location of it, which was a major supply line to send troops and supplies out to the west. Um, Camp Curtin, as Jim, Jim will allude to, is one of the largest uh, training camps in the war. So logistically, not just because it's a capital, getting Harrisburg would be a major blow.
1: Yeah, there was over 300,000 troops came through Harrisburg over the uh, four years of, of the war. It definitely was number one in the north, if uh, not the whole nation. Uh, now, back then, when you'd say uh, training camp, sometimes just, here's your uniform, your guns, you're off. The guys never even were taught how to fire a weapon. It just depends on the emergency at the time.
0: Could you talk a little more about Camp Curtin? It's not like the Civil War was completely away from Harrisburg before Lee came.
1: No, what happened was five days after the surrender of Fort Sumter, Governor Curtin takes over the Dauphin County Agricultural Fairgrounds, which I say is like the forerunner of the Pennsylvania State Farm Show, which is a huge complex today. Where the farm show is today was a canal. The canals came through uh, Duncan and down along the uh, the river on, on the east shore and then down through. Uh, CAMERON STREET AND HEADED uh, uh, SOUTHEAST, BUT um, Curtin WAS BASICALLY TODAY, IF IT WAS STILL THERE, IT WOULD BE TWO BLOCKS BY SIX BLOCKS, BUT THEN YOU HAD HOFFMAN'S WOODS WHERE THE OUT-OF-STATE TROOPS EVEN CAMPED. SO uh, AT CERTAIN TIMES, THERE WAS MORE MEN IN CAMP Curtin THAN THERE WERE CIVILIANS IN THE CITY, AND THE MAYORS HAD A LOT OF PROBLEMS OVER THE, over the f- FOUR YEARS OF THE WAR where they had to finally get the Army to help police the streets, because the soldiers, you know, a lot of these guys are young. They're farmers. It's the first time they're away from home. And they're sowing their wild oats and getting crazy. And uh, there was trouble on and off, and uh, the Army had to start helping the police police the camp. But it closed down, uh, which today would be Veterans Day, the the 150th anniversary of the closing of Camp Curtin is November 11th, of 2015, and it is our organization's 25th years since its founding. Also, uh, this year.
0: Now, the, the the event we're talking about today is a relatively small affair compared to Gettysburg sure. or Fredericksburg, but there's some big characters involved. We talk about Darius Couch. Uh,
1: Darius was actually head of the Second Corps at Chancellorsville, and uh, after that battle was over, and. Uh, he told Lincoln, I'm out of here, you know, I gotta, gotta give me something else. So Lincoln creates the Department of Susquehanna and Couch is brought in uh, to start checking out the fortifications and adding fortifications. Uh, there was uh, two forts built on the west, well, Harrisburg's west shore and that was Fort Washington, which was already started. And then when Couch got here, uh, some of the soldiers that were already on the ground let Couch know that, uh, hey, there's ground here a little bit higher west of this fort. We really should be building here also. So uh, they got that done too. And they had um, the civilians come over from Harrisburg, probably about uh, thousands at, at one time, but they're all office workers and they're used to being in offices and not the heavy work. So the next day, a lot of them weren't coming back to help the fortifications that were being built in the middle of June. And uh, so what they did was bring um, uh, black laborers over, black railroad gangs, and they paid them anywhere from 75 cents to $1.25 a day. Well, that's very fair. If the Union soldiers only making $13 a day, you know, they weren't ripping them off. And a lot of times they don't get the credit for helping to finish the fortifications um, on Harrisburg's west shore.
0: Could you talk more about those forts, what they looked like? Uh, Could they have stopped the Confederate attack?
1: Well, they definitely were placed on the high ground, and the Confederates were told to take, they really needed that high ground because they could lob shells down onto uh, Harrisburg. The river's only eight tenths of a mile, and you know Union artillery can go, uh, the three inch ordnance in Paris can go almost up to two miles, so it would not have been a problem. And they did have six artillery pieces up here under Jenkins' cavalry. So they were on uh, the hills of Bridgeport, which of course is today Lemoyne and uh, Couch. Couch, there is part of it that you can drive and look at. There is part of the ramparts still there. Uh, Washington, there's bits and pieces. They built a lot of homes on them now, but um, they were very close together. It
2: was Fort Washington, Camp Couch, Fort Couch.
0: What would the Confederate invasion have meant to African Americans in this region?
2: Well, well, as we, as I mentioned earlier, we have. Um, in this area south central pennsylvania west of the susquehanna very unique connection to the south and slavery as an institution in pennsylvania uh, because of that barrier in part lasted here a lot longer than other other places and with that over generations uh, free african-american communities began to sprout out all up and down the cumberland valley um, you had closer to chambersburg you had little africa uh, but up here in the, uh, in the Cumberland County, Carlisle, Harrisburg area, you had a number of free blacks living in Carlisle, and a huge community in Harrisburg. Um, as Jim mentioned earlier, a lot of these men, especially the, those from Harrisburg, are tapped uh, to build the fortifications, uh, become Fort Couch and Fort Washington. Um, they are laborers. Uh, in a the sense, they are, working, they are laboring. Uh, what maybe they, can't, they aren't allowed to fight quite yet, but they are laboring to defend their city, to defend the Union. Uh, And to defend the freedom of of African Americans all across this land, so it's it's a unique sense in that way. Um, But here in Cumberland County, there's very little records because there's very, very little. There's very, very few diaries by African American, um, free African Americans in Cumberland County. There is one account from a Spring House in Carlisle where um there's an African-American woman holding her cry, holding her baby hoping the baby won't cry in a spring house as Confederates are getting water from that same spring house just outside. Um, that's, that's near Carlisle.
1: Yeah well the, also the, the underground Railroad was prominent coming up through Gettysburg, Alexander Springs into Wrightsville uh, and also into York Springs uh, boiling springs. you got all these springs because he's these healing agents in the sulfur in the water, people like going to these resorts, you have Carlisle Springs, a lot of that around here. But a lot of them are also links on the Underground Railroad heading into Harrisburg. Uh, the right where the Dauphin County Courthouse is today, that was 9 South and 11 South Front Street in Harrisburg. That was Mr. Kelker and Rutherford homes. And uh, they were uh, prominent station masters in the Underground Railroad. And then they'd sneak them in at night to the 8th Ward, which is now where the Forum Building is in Soldiers Grove. That was the African-American area Harrisburg. And they'd just work their way up through uh, Route 81 and heading on their way to Canada, a lot of them.
0: Confederates kidnapped African-Americans?
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, General Jenkins definitely, um, he was no prince, you know, and uh, he was uh, taking some, free blacks coming up in on its way to Mechanicsburg and uh, shipping them down south uh, so that definitely has to be talked about but it's part of the history and it can't be ignored
0: now you mentioned Albert Gallatin Jenkins he's gonna play a major role in the event we're talking about at oh, yes. Sporting Hill who is he tell us about his background
1: um, he was uh, 32 years at the time when he came into this area his beard went down to his belt had one of the longest beards in the Confederacy. He was a Harvard graduate, and is a uh, United States congressman. And uh, he had a plantation near Green Bottom, which is in present day West Virginia, and it's near Charleston in that area. And uh, recently I was looking, uh, that uh, it was just put on the National Register for Historic Preservation, and they're gonna look to uh, build a plantation there and teach people what it was like during the times of the Civil War, so that's that's interesting. But um, he was around this area for three days. Three days he was in charge of anywhere from 11 to 1200 troops. It's hard to really nail it down because of raiding parties and guys being sent to other places. But that's basically the amount of men that was under him.
0: He was a cavalry commander?
2: Yes, he was a, uh, they they was they were not the, uh, um, you know, premier cavalry, the Army of Northern Virginia. A lot of times in accounts, they are referred to as mounted infantry. Right. Uh, they were often armed as infantry, but they, uh, they were effect cavalry. They were the uh, vanguard of General Ewell's corps, who in this northernmost probe up the Cumberland Valley was the vanguard of Lee's army. So these guys were out front uh, reconnoitering uh, in front of General Ewell. It,
1: what he had here was the, uh... Uh, 34th and 36th Virginia Battalion, which is like half regiments, and then he had the 14th and 16th Virginia regiments. Now, you adding all that up, that's 3,000 men, if that's what they actually had in the beginning of the war, but you know by Gettysburg and this campaign, a lot of them are down to 50%. So if he had 3,000, what's 50%? 1,500, but he had about 1,200, and then he gave Gordon and Early the 35th battalion and the 17th regiment and then Lee had the 37th battalion so he did have some eyes engineers not a lot but uh it was you know Jenkins did uh definitely have a presence in the campaign
0: now you will send Jenkins out of Carlisle toward Mechanicsburg and ultimately Harrisburg what's the order to do there why is he
2: doing it general Jenkins is coming out here uh he is not to take Harrisburg by himself his goal, his, um, what is set as his goal, is to reconnoiter the defenses of Harrisburg and tell General Ewell back in Carlisle if this city is takeable. Um, again, as Jim said, he has about 11, 1,200 1, cavalry coming up here. Ewell is back there with 15,000 infantry. Um, so that's the, that is the real force. Jenkins is just the, um, the probe to see you know, what are we getting ourselves into here.
1: Right. When he, when he comes into Mechanicsburg at 9.30 Sunday morning, they go down and get the mayor out of the square, bring him back, and they have the surrender. And everybody brings their Sunday dinners down. And uh, Jenkins goes out, and uh, they eat out in the field outside of town. And the present day Mechanicsburg Library was a grain warehouse, which they need that for their horses. They just can't keep eating grass. It's not. They need grain also. That became Confederate uh, hospital for the invasion of Harrisburg. THEN THEY SPLIT THEIR FORCES IN HALF. 800 uh, PROCEEDED INTO THE Rupp HOME WHERE HE PUTS HIS HEADQUARTERS ON THE 5100 BLOCK OF TRINDLE AND THEN HE SENDS ANOTHER three to 400 OUT ON ROUTE 11 HERE TO START PUSHING uh, THE UNION TROOPS BACK IN TOWARDS HARRISBURG AND CHECKING OUT THE defenses. SO <clears throat> HE'S COMING IN ON ROUTE 641 AND ROUTE 11 ON HIS WAY AND THAT WOULD BE SUNDAY THE 28TH. THIS IS THE SAME TIME that Hooker is relieved and Meade is put in command of the Army of the Potomac uh, down Frederick, uh, Maryland.
0: Now, there's some fighting in Mechanicsburg when he first arrives. Could you talk about
2: that?
1: Um, really, when he comes in, uh, the Union Cavalry, what was this, the Was it Boyd?
2: Uh, Captain Murray. It was, Murray. Just, it was a I little was tiny skirmish, yeah, but there was, right. that was outside of the town.
1: Right. And it was a small skirmish. And basically, Jenkins says you better get out of here because you're going to get hurt, you know. And they, they run into the train station hotel, which isn't there no longer, and they take the telegraph machine out and run to uh, Harrisburg with it. And then Jenkins proceeds in. Uh, and then there's, of course, the skirmishing. Once, once they are in this area, uh, Jenkins places two artillery pieces at the Albright home, which is still there, and Camp Curtin Historical Society. We recently just put six waysides in the area, and you can look at campcurtin.org to see where the waysides are. And we have one at the Albright House where they have a, th- a uh, three-inch ordnance and a 12-pound uh, howitzer. And then they put four parrot guns that they got from Milroy and Winchester, Union, of course, at the Peace Church at St. John's in Trindle. So for two days, you have sparring with the Union militia. How many Cooper was... Uh, the head count you feel
2: well for union? there were several thousand union militia massed around here we don't know exa- again we don't know exactly how many were in certain places at oysters point they usually had a generally a, a little under a thousand you'd have two or three regiments who would have a line of skirmishers out there and they'd swap the regiments back and forth between the fort and the uh, what was essentially their front line which was oysters point um, about a mile, mile and a half out from the forts, would you say?
1: Yeah, like point. what, 12,000 total, I think they say. Yeah, from,
2: generally in the Harrisburg <coughs> area. From the
1: Harrisburg yeah. area. Camp Curtin, you have men in there. And then from the river to where the skirmishing for two days happened at Oysters Point, you had 12,000 Union militia from New York, Philadelphia. Of course, a lot of these guys never were in a battle in their life. Just like when Jenkins came in <coughs> on Sunday and they put their artillery at the Salem Church, which is still here at Salem Church Road and Route 11. And the artillery shells are flying right here where we're sitting. General Knipes here with his uh, militia. And uh, they ran. I uh, think Cooper found a uh, Carlisle Sentinel.
2: Well, there, it, was a, his it was a citizen's diary. Diary. And the, and I love the citizen's quote. Uh, he said, they. They walked as fast as they could run. <laughs> uh, so that gives you an idea of their retreat. And they left all, all sorts of things Polar behind. All
1: equipment just thrown um, down. They ran back to the river.
2: I, I think just, just, we should just give everybody a, a brief idea. Oyster's Point was, um, it's essentially what the Pennsylvania Dutch called a road fork, it was a point. And yeah. there happened to be a hotel there owned by the Oyster family. There's actually a New Yorker who wrote in his diary uh, it's called Oyster's Point, but I find no oysters here. Um, <laughs> You know, they, they, it confuse some of the men, but that is kind of the focal point where the Union forces have massed outside of Fort Washington. This is where they're going to... It's a road intersection where the Carlisle Pike and the Trindle Road converge, so that's that makes a key. Um, this is where they're going to put up a little bit of a fight before the, the main Confederate force arrives and they realize they're going to have to withdraw back to the fort. Right.
1: This gives Jenkins time to reconnoiter and, and check out Harrisburg's defenses. Uh, for two days, he's doing this. Now, the Oyster Point Hotel, if people look GPS and all that, it's r- roughly about the 3,000 block of Market, <clears throat> and it's four miles from the river, okay? So they got as close as 28th and Market, which back then was called Line Kiln Lane on 28th Street. And if you, it's basically an alley. If you go there today, there's a very old barn in that alley, and I'd love to research that to see if that's, because it looks 1860s. And the Confederate skirmishers were lined up on that in that alley, shooting at Union troops around 2602 Market, which is there. That's Postmaster Bowman's home. And he's up in the attic, and he hears the bullets pinging off the side of the home while him and his family's in there. Later, one of the Confederates that were wounded at the skirmishing, they had a barn in the back of the, Albre- of the uh, Bowman home. And uh, they had a- to amputate his leg. Bowman's brother was a doctor. And he said he never saw a Confederate, not even flinch, anyone. I'm sorry, never flinch, while getting an amputation done. He was just amazed at that.
0: We've been talking about militia. And I think that's important yeah. we set that aside. Yep. Tell us about uh, a militia and what separates it from the regular army. Well, what
2: happens is you have, before the war, the United States regular army. Um, you just call it the United States Army. That is the regular uh, not peacetime force that is out there. At the beginning of the Civil War, there's all sorts of figures, but it's usually about 16,000 men in the US Army. Obviously, that's not enough to fight a war against the Confederacy, and they're spread out on outposts all over the American West. So that's when they began recruiting the Volunteer Army. Um, The Volunteer Army is pretty much, you have the the 71st Pennsylvania, all those regiments, the 20th Maine, those are volunteer units, and they usually have volunteer in their title. Uh, Pennsylvania had an organized militia system before the war. However, that was, we use the term organized uh, loosely, it had 20 divisions on paper. It was more of a social club. You'd get you you know you'd go fire at a tree, and you'd go to the bar and you'd give toast until you were uh, uh, drunk out of your mind. That was the Pennsylvania militia system in the decades leading up to the Civil War. Most of those men who were already active in a semi quasi military organization by uh, eighteen sixty one, when Lincoln calls for volunteers, they enlist in a volunteer unit. They're one of the f- they're usually the first people to do that. So come eighteen sixty three, when Joe Hooker is back in. Uh, Virginia with the Army Potomac, Lee gets a head start. Who is going to defend Pennsylvania? There's no militia system left. So in the end, uh, the New York State National Guard, which is an organized system, they're not well, they're not well trained or experienced, but they're organized uh, more than on just on paper. They come from New York, uh, principally down here to Pennsylvania. Uh, they don't get along with the citizens at all. There's all these fights. They're rampaging homes, uh, but. The New Yorkers will be the principal defenders of Harrisburg. They'll be the ones fighting here at Sporting Hill. So they are um, National Guard troops. They mm-hmm. are not well experienced. Uh, the one, one National Guardsman himself admitted that the only time their generals really were, had practice, they'd put on their spectacles to read the orders to go on parade on 4th of July. Um, you have some Pennsylvania militia supplementing this force, but it is not. they do not come in until uh, very late. There are some bungled calls by Governor Curtin, uh, and some men fear they're going to be trapped in serving for the entire war. So most of the Pennsylvanians don't come out until after June 26. So you have a few few Pennsylvania regiments at Oysters Point. You'll have a Pennsylvania battery here at Sporting Hill. But the majority of the troops here in this area, when the Confederates are here, are New York National Guardsmen.
1: One of the the neat stories with the, uh, a lot of the New York troops were very upset to see all the young Pennsylvania boys not enlisted yet. But then when the Confederates saw all the Pennsylvania boys not enlisted, they go, oh my gosh, we're in trouble. Look at all these massive barns, all this industry. All these young guys didn't even enlist yet. And the New Yorkers were really upset. They were trashing the Oyster Point Hotel. They were throwing beds out the windows looking for money, smearing preserves and jams on the walls. Uh, They saw Amish for the first time. They thought they were Confederates. There's reports that they had a townspeople had to stop them from shooting the Amish. Uh, they had, back then, parade hats were very common, and they their walk around with parade hats they found in Polly Oyster's Tavern through the town. So it's, it was, uh, it's interesting what we've found over the years of research in this area.
0: Now for our purposes here at Sporting Hill, things really start to pick up whenever Robert E. Lee calls all of his forces to come together at Gettysburg. Could you talk about that?
2: What happens is Robert E. Lee has uh, come up, obviously come down the Shenandoah Valley into Pennsylvania. His forces are massed, as Jim mentioned, around Chambersburg. Uh, that is A.P. Hill and Longstreet. Uh, Ewell is stretched out to uh, York, York-Wrightsville area as with Early, and the rest of his corps, obviously, as we we're talking about, is here in Carlisle, uh, the Carlisle Mechanicsburg area. What happens is Lee has, as most Gettysburg buffs know, for those in general... Uh, those who are just generally interested Jeb Stewart who is Lee's cavalry commander uh, the eyes and ears of his army is has ridden east of the Union east of the Union Army so the Union Army is between Jeb Stewart and Robert E Lee so Jeb Stewart and the main Confederate cavalry force that has stayed together um, cannot report back to Lee so Lee has lost a lot of the intelligence he would normally gather so the Union Army in a sense can sneak up on him and he realizes you know Oh, oh, my dear, this, they're in Maryland. And he didn't expect them to be up that fast. So he quickly needs to concentrate his army. They're strung all over the place. He tells General Ewell on June 29th to uh, concentrate in the Gettysburg-Cashtown area. Now, the interesting part about this is that's around 1 o'clock, as we recently found that the exact time it was about 1 o'clock the afternoon of June 29th. Richard Ewell had his men lined up in the streets of Carlisle. Tents, tents were struck. They were ready to march on Harrisburg. They were ready to start the march that afternoon when they received that order. Uh, They go back, pitch tents, they head back to Gettysburg 4 a.m. following morning of June 30th, uh, south of the Baltimore Pike. Now here's where it gets very interesting. You would think the story of Harrisburg in this campaign is over, but it's not. Despite what you would believe, inexplicably, General Ewell forgets General Jenkins here on the West Shore. Now, a lot of historians will dispute that and say he was a rear guard. Uh, I like to quote uh, one of my, even though I never met him, one of my historical mentors, Wilbur S. Nye, um, who wrote the book, the original book in the 1960s, who said that a, um, an invisible decoy is no decoy. General Jenkins was not a decoy. He hit his brigade west of the Silver Spring Creek about a good mile, maybe a mile and a half to the west of us, all day on June 30th. General Couch, on the other hand, actually has intelligence that uh, General Ewell has withdrawn from Carlisle. He has a citizen who walked back, told him, the Confederates are marching south. So Couch sees an opportunity. He says, let's send a brigade out there, see what Confederates are left. Maybe we can scoop them up, capture them, get some good headlines. And he sends out General John Ewan's brigade uh, of New York State National Guardsmen Uh, coming out here to Sporting Hill Are the 22nd and 37th New York State National Guard. Uh, They march out the Carlisle Pike. Uh, they dilly-dally most of the morning, they send cavalry scouts out to here, and they can't find the Confederates. They must be gone. They start to head back to camp. When, again with this theme of forgetfulness, General, um, or excuse me, the cavalry scouts for General Ewan run into Confederate scouts just to our uh, west and the little tree line over there, uh, and there's a little bit of a, a skirmish here. The Union cavalry scouts turn back, as fast as they can ride, overtake the Union Brigade and say, we found the Confederates. Uh, general Ewan is now po- posed with a big uh, decision. Does he continue back to camp or does he turn around like his original orders and find the Confederates? Uh, he will actually turn to a staff officer. General Ewan himself was, um, he was a New York businessman. He was not a general by trade. He was a National Guard general. Uh, He had never been in a battle before, so this was very new to him. He turns to a 25-year-old staff officer named Rufus King, Jr., and asks him what to do. Uh, King says, I think we ought to go out and get the rebels. The column is grumbling. They want lunch. They turn around. They come here to Sporting Hill. Uh, They arrive a little to our um, east around 3.30 p.m. in the afternoon. Meanwhile, Jenkins, as all this is going on, the Confederates have gone into a tailspin. Jenkins realizes that Yule is no longer in Carlisle. You can imagine for Jenkins it must have come as a shock. You have 15,000 infantry one day in Carlisle to your rear and the next day they're, they're just vanished off the map. Um, he quickly sees what's happening when he hears that there are Union troops coming, coming up towards him. He sends the 14th Virginia, his one of his largest regiments, back to Carlisle uh, to hold his base to, so he can't get cut off. Uh, he then Uh, sends about 300 men, give or take a few, out to this site here, Sporting Hill. He tells uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vincent Witcher, a commander of the 34th Virginia Cavalry Battalion, to quote, hold at all hazards. Jenkins believes that Couch's entire force is coming out to get him. So how would you feel if you're Vincent Witcher, your commander gives you 300 men, go out there, uh, hold at all hazards, I think there's 10,000 men coming at you. and this goes into the thing where we, we understand that Jenkins was not retreating. He was waiting for Ewell to come up because he had his forces spread out all over the area. Um, one thing that we uh, investigated, uh, State Archives a couple of years ago, is I went and looked at the damage claims of residents and they spiked dramatically on June 30th, which tells us that the Confederates aren't preparing for withdrawal. Right. They're not in camp. Right. They're out scavenging the farms. Um, anything you wanna add, Jim?
1: Uh, well, t- to help people sort of understand where things are, uh, Jenkins and uh, the uh, Confederate General of the 16th, Ferguson, they're out at uh, Route 11, Carlisle Pike, and S- Silver Springs Creek with the majority of their men. And then Witcher is close by the barn on uh, probably about the present day 515200 block of uh, Carlisle Pike but uh, you pretty well uh, have covered everything.
0: Okay so we have uh, two forces in position. The battle is upon us. Take us through the Battle of Sporting Hill.
2: Well what happens is at 3.30 John Ewan's men are coming up the pike Uh, all of a sudden they hear some uh, cracks, some pops and they see puffs of smoke from this barn. This barn was the Moses Eberly barn at the time often mistaken for the McCormick barn. Uh, behind us is the Moses Eberly House, which dates back to the 1790s. s. Yeah,
1: the McCormick Barn. this didn't become the McCormick Barn until eighteen sixty four. Mm-hmm. So
2: yeah, it, it's, that's it, why
1: a lot of people are confused with Eberly McCormick.
2: I, I it, it was it's the Eberly Barn. I just say the McCormick because a lot of people identify with that locally as the the name. Um, but what's happening is John Ewan's men are coming up. They're fired upon. They lay down on their stomachs in the Carlisle Pike. John Ewan is kind of frozen. Again, he is not quite the. Um, He's not the military prowess, He's, his military experience is essentially confined to 4th of July parades. And he sends a little few skirmishers out to the ridge to uh, kind of approach the barn. Uh, they're trading fire back and forth, but they're not going to do much much damage to the Confederates. Uh, General Yuen remains stationary. He is literally frozen. He's just sitting there observing the battle, not sure what to do. At this juncture, the Confederates, uh, who's Lieutenant Colonel Vincent A. Witcher, who is back a couple hundred yards to our west in the, uh, what is now what was called then Glimes Grove. It is now an office building and a uh, restaurant. He will cross the Carlisle Pike to the south side to a grove of woods. Um, I, in my book I called it Snavely's Woods because it was the uh, property owner. Um, and there they're going to try to flank the Union troops on the south side of the pike. General Ewan again, he must have seen these guys cross the pike in broad daylight he remains frozen. Uh, once again, that staff officer, Lieutenant Rufus King Jr., jumps to the rescue and sends two companies on his own responsibility uh, south of the pike. They drive the Confederates out of the woods. Uh, they are now almost uh, almost straight down from the Confederate line in the woods. Um, and the battle begins uh, as those two companies remain out there very far towards the Confederate position. General Ewan around 4 p.m., deploys the 37th of New York, where we are on the north side of the pike, Uh, three companies of the 22nd with them and the rest of the 22nd new york on the south side of the pike the 22nd new york lines up almost directly to our south so much so very poorly placed that their flank is open to us here in the barns you can imagine the confederates firing down the length of their line so they pretty much have to lay down in a wheat field they can't return fire their end is facing us they can't their line is facing uh, almost due west so it is very difficult for them they are pinned down uh, meanwhile, to, uh, uh, straight from the barn here, you have the 37th New York and the three companies of the 22nd, by far the largest Union force in the field. They began approaching, uh, but the barn at the time obviously had an upper wooden upper structure. The Confederates are up there. They can see the movements of these forces before they crest the ridge in front of us. So as the Union soldiers crest the ridge about 260, 300 yards uh, away from us, They already know they're coming, and they open up a volley on the force. They strike a lieutenant in the neck. They even strike a drummer boy in the calf. Uh, But these Union forces are pinned down. Uh, The 37th of New York becomes very frightened. They have never been in a battle before. Most of these men, I should say. Uh, And eventually, General Ewan will actually try to uh, get a company, of the 22nd, to use bayonets to force their own men down to the bottom of the ridge. Uh, But they will go on their own. Hearing this threat, they will go on their own. So this kind of battle is in this little stalemate. Uh, Then Lieutenant Colonel Witcher uh, opens a surprise. He has two guns back in Glimes Grove and he starts firing artillery. The Union soldiers aren't quite sure what to think of this and they are running scared. Uh, uh, The companies of the 22nd that are up here on this side of the pike dart to the south side. They begin shooting over there at where the two companies of the 22nd who were far out in advance of the rest of the uh, Union forces are. Uh, there was a group of cavalry over there who skedaddle back to the Carlisle, uh, back to what is now Sporting Hill Road, will not be seen for the rest of the battle. So these Union troops are acting in mayhem and to give you an idea of their uh, kind of their innocence, I like the account of John Irvin Murray, who is a private out there in that woods, and he says that he looked over to the Confederate position, he could see it, he was that close. He saw smoke, he thought they were making a uh, campfire. Well, it was cannon. Uh, and soon branches started falling around him and he realized they were under artillery fire. But it gives you an idea of the innocence of these men who they they thought, oh, it's a a cookout. Uh, They didn't realize they were going to be shelled. Around 6, a little before 6 o'clock that evening, um, a Union battery arrives, two guns from a Philadelphia light artillery unit. They fire, they begin loading their Is gun. Is that under
1: Captain Landis? Captain Landis' battery. It was Reynolds' brother-in-law. That was killed at yeah. Gettysburg.
2: John Reynolds, the famous general, uh, a, re- a brother-in-law of him. Uh, Landis's battery come out here, and the first gun unlimbers a couple hundred yards uh, diagonal from us. They train their sight on the barn where the Confederates are. There's about 50 or so Confederates being really pesky all during this battle in this barn. And they begin loading the cannon fuse first which is essentially backwards and leads to a premature explosion. So once again we have this Lieutenant Rufus King Jr. being the savior, he comes in here, he gives them a quick artillery lesson. Their first shot uh, would explode right above our heads, a little to our left, square in the center of the barn, uh, killing probably about a dozen Confederates, and the rest of the Confederates will shuffle out of the barn and head back uh, a good 500 yards to our rear where Glimes Grove is. So that is effectively the end of the skirmish, skirmish musket fire of this battle. Um, then it comes into an art- artillery duel between uh, Jackson's uh, Kanawha artillery, the Confederate forces uh, back in Glimes uh, Grove, and the Union artillery, which is unlimbering in the Pike and fields uh, to our uh, rear.
1: Yeah, the, uh, posi- the artillery position for the uh, Union militia today would be uh, Sporting Hill Road in the northwest corner. Of uh, Carlisle Pike in that vicinity, give people an idea. There was a uh, after the, the skirmish was over. Of course, the papers called it the battle. Uh, right along route, present day Route 581 and Route 11 was a Confederate cemetery till 1895. And John Heiser, who helped Cooper with um, the maps in his book, I think did some research to prove that. And 20-some years ago, an elderly man that uh, lived here in the barn during World War II even pointed out where the Confederate bodies were placed. So uh, we definitely have some two good sources to show where the cemetery was.
2: 16 16 Confederates were killed. Yes, 30 uh, wounded. 20 to 30 wounded. And uh, there were a number of uh, graves found on the way back to Carlisle by the Union troops the following day, uh, which probably indicates there were mortally wounded Confederates who died along the way back.
0: Now, as sort of a post-mortem of the battle, who wins and uh, why is it still important?
2: Want to take this one, Jim? Uh, Well,
1: it's important because uh, we have to look at the whole campaign. So many people just look at the three days. And um, when you look at the, the whole campaign, Lee was after Harrisburg. And to see that his troops came As close as 20th and Market, which is three miles from the city, and he has 15,000 Carlisle. They were heading here before Lee ordered them back. They were on their way. And one of the things that uh, cracks WHEN people say, I wonder what Stonewall Jackson would have done if he was at Gettysburg. Well, he would have never been at Gettysburg because if you know if he would have been killed at Chancellorsville, he would have been in charge of the Confederate forces on their way to Harrisburg. And as slow as Richard Ewell was and hesitant. Stonewall would have been up here two days earlier, and the whole history of America might have changed. You know, and usually you tell people that it's like a, a cold water in their face, and they get out of their three-day standard story of Gettysburg and start realizing there's more to this story before, and also the important part, the retrieve from Gettysburg, which nobody looks at, the Battle of Falling Waters.
2: And it's also important to remember that where we are right now is the northernmost engagement of the Gettysburg campaign. This is as far north as you have actual fighting uh, during this campaign.
0: If visitors wanted to see remnants of the skirmish at Sporting Hill, what could they see today?
1: Well, uh, in this area, we have the actual barn. But it is private property. We must respect that. It's very uh, well-maintained, controlled private property located along uh, just off Route 11 in Hampton Township. so it's tough actually getting right on this site. Now, there is other things There's part of Fort uh, Couch. We have a beautiful monument there. It's a big 12 by six foot uh, black stone monument people can see. Uh, there is the Peace Church, the Salem Church, the Albright House, uh, the uh, present day Library Mechanicsburg, uh, which is hospital. The, a lot of the artillery positions, the buildings are still here. And um, there is uh, part of uh, Fort Couch, not really all that much, but they can see that, too. Uh, Also, when you go up Slate Hill, uh, at the top of St. John's Road on Lisburn, there's an old barn where Jenkins and 60 of his men went behind that barn to overlook the fortifications of Harrisburg and its west shore, while the skirmishing at Oysters Point was going on Sunday and Monday. So that barn is still there also. There is uh, brochures, the Cumberland Valley Visitors Bureau, which I helped design, uh, showing where all these positions are. It's called the West, it's the West Shore Invasion brochure. So if you look up Cumberland Valley Visitors Bureau, I'm sure they would love to mail you those. And also I have them uh, at my store and I can show you where the waysides and monuments are uh, to help you. It's definitely, you could kill a good afternoon around here plus you got the national civil war museum to visit so you got a day easily
0: on that note i'd like to thank my guests cooper Wingert and jim schmick for joining us today as always if you have questions about today's episode or recommendations for future episodes of battlefield pennsylvania please visit our website at pcntv.com for everybody here at battlefield pennsylvania i'm brady kreitzer saying so long